0: Welcome to the Remnant by Reclaim 611 podcast. I'm Paula. And I'm Gary. And we are excited about our very, very special guest today. Yes, we have we someone are. all the way from the U.S. Department of Homeland Lo- Security. <laughs> <laughs> today we have uh, Sarilyn Morgan. She is an LCSWS. Um, with a BCD, board-certified diplomat. She has been uh, the victim assistance specialist for Homeland Security Investigations, Immigration and Customs Enforcement since October 2016. During her time at Homeland Security, she has provided outreach and education to over 225 organizations exceeding 75,000 persons trained in human trafficking. She has served victims of traumatic events professionally since 1995. She says one of the most rewarding times in her military career was the four years, November 2009 through February 2014, that she provided the behavioral health oversight and care for the survivors of the Fort Hood shooting. Um, I don't want to say too much more, but I do want you guys to know that she is a colonel and she currently serves in the (laughs) United States Army Reserves as the commander for combat operation stress control attachment. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Saralen Morgan, but before we talk to Saralen, I want you guys to hear a story from um, Carrie. You know, we always go. have a story from Carrie how she met our special guest. So Carrie, take it over.
1: All right. Well, I don't know if Sarah Lynn's going to remember this because I was listening to her. I was in the audience and we were at a conference. And I believe it was a forensic conference um here in the Metroplex. And she started talking and she's one of those people when she starts talking, like, they're just like, the whole room is quiet and the entire time she has your attention. And I just was like, whoa, she is a powerhouse. Not only does she have so much knowledge and, but she will just blow you away. She's got stories. She has done so much in this space. And so it was just so exciting. And then actually so funny is about last year, I think my husband came home and he was um, at a hospital-based conference or something. I don't remember where he was, but he came home and he said, "Hey, do you know Sarah Lynn Morgan?" And I was like, "Yes, I've met her before. She's like, "Wow, she's amazing. That was the, one of the best um, one of the best uh, uh, speaking that I've, I've heard in a long time. She will definitely move you. I'm like, I know. So we are so excited. I've literally I told her I've been like giddy ever since she said yes to being our guest today. So welcome Sarah Lynn.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited. And it's a privilege to be here today. So excited.
0: Yes. Sarah tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I read a little bit of your bio. I didn't get into all of it. Ladies and gentlemen, this woman has done so much, mm-hmm. like so much, so many amazing things. But I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I'm just an ordinary person. I've uh, been married for 24 years to my wonderful husband, Tyrone. We have two boys who are we are so proud of. One will graduate December of next year with an engineer tech- technology degree from uh, West Texas A&M. And our other son is a junior at San Angelo. He's also a football player there. And we have a dog, Tyson professionally. uh, Well, my husband and I, we serve in our church. So we lead our marriage ministry. So we do marriage counseling, premarital counseling. We let others learn from our mess, our mess (laughs) and our mistakes. It's such a privilege to give people the opportunity to prevent going down that road. And I kind of ran from this work um, because I'm a survivor of sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I was sexually abused by my uncle. And so I have been prepared for this work since I was before seven years old. My sexual abuse stopped at the age of seven, but I have lots of trauma. So uh, along the path people always ask me, so how did you get into this work and how did you decide what path to take this, you know, all those questions and I said is simply God. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an amazing God story. I won't tell you that that's part of my book, but um It's just amazing how he rescued me with a flood from my sexual abuse, and um, so I ended up at Homeland Security after lots of stuff at the VA. I was the suicide prevention coordinator there, and I had a very toxic supervisor because I was loving my job. I was like doing military sexual trauma treatment, uh, taking care of high-risk veterans who had tried to complete suicide. And so I was just doing those things and I was in my element. And this is after I came off of active duty and all of a sudden toxicity came along and forced me to look for a job. And that's kind of how I ended up at Homeland Security, which I never knew this job existed, but it's a dream job. Uh, the people that interviewed me actually were like, okay, is she okay? Because I was crying. I was so thankful that God would like try to pay me for what I was like, what I love to do. <laughs> and so um, they they interviewed me three times. They're like, we just need to make sure she's it's okay. <laughs> I was like, no, I just think it's a gift to be able to equip people who have walked through trauma and show them the picture of healing. Yeah. Because I'm a picture of healing. When people see me, you can see that it's possible. Um, I don't come from riches. I don't come from any of that. So uh, what I do, I'll do it because I love it. And I'll do it until the day I die because it is actually my mission field. So I'm honored to be here, honored to serve those that I get to partner with, protect and prevent sexual assault and educate. So it's a thrill and a privilege to do the work that I do. We're so grateful for you. Wow.
0: Yes. Can so can you tell us a little bit more in depth about what you do?
2: So at Homeland Security, I'm the victim assistance specialist and My job is like all inclusive. So I, um, my day is never the same. I do outreach education. So I go out and I do education for the community. There's no charge for any of the education that I provide. Provide. It doesn't matter the size of the group or the organization. Anybody interested in education, I'm willing to lend my time myself so that we can eradicate sex trafficking. Uh, My motto and my theme is one team, one fight. We're all in this together. You cannot tame what you can't name. So outreach is a big part of what I do. And even if I'm working with an organization where I placed a client, I am so excited to be able to partner with them and to educate their staff. So outreach is one aspect of it. I go out on operations with our agents, our special agents who are all law enforcement. I'm not law enforcement, but I work for law enforcement. And so I go out with them. And at the moment of recovery of a client, I, at that time, provide victim-centered care, trauma-informed care for that individual. And that care is individualized and specialized for every individual. So depends on what their needs, it runs the gamut. So I will provide crisis intervention. I'm a therapist by trade. I've been a therapist since 1995. So um, I provide crisis intervention. I provide for their basic needs, getting them clothing, food, hospital care, Um, You name it, if they need housing, I just don't take care of the client. I take care of their family, whoever their family component is, because I'm a firm believer that if I leave everybody else sick or wounded or vulnerable, then I'm not doing justice to the client that I've served. So uh, I partner with the community to be able to do that. So my partnerships with NGOs like reclaim uh, other NGOs in the community. I know you've had Lindsay on here uh, from Traffic 911, Mosaic and Mr. Bernstein, you know. So I partner with those community organizations, Rescue Her, I can't name them all, but there's some really great ones out there. And they do a lot of my hands-on advocacy because I cover all of the Dallas, Fort Worth area, East Texas, San Angelo, Amarillo, Lubbock, and all of Oklahoma. Wow! And wow. so uh, when I encounter a client I don't close a case per se. I transition them from the time of recovery to complete restoration. Providing comprehensive care is what I strive to do. Um, my partners and I, whoever I'm partnering with to serve that particular client.
0: Nice. So what does complete recovery look like?
2: Complete recovery is not something that happens overnight. It is something that is very resource intense, but recovery for each individual looks the same. Um, I will just say that I'm completely recovered and restored. Um, That process for me has taken, I wanna say 40 years. And the reason why I say that is because it's what you do that determines the rate, the pace, and the time frame for recovery. Mm-hmm. So if the individual is what many po- post-traumatic stress disorder individuals do, they avoid. Mm-hmm. So when you avoid, you don't wanna deal with you. You don't wanna deal with the pain. You don't wanna deal with the nightmares. You sometimes self-medicate, uh, whether it's self-medication with shopping, uh, illegal drugs or prescription drugs or, or workaholic. You know, you find other things to do and to indulge in versus your own wounds. And so for me, it was not until I was 40 when I became trained as an EMDR therapist, that stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, when I went through that therapy training, I had to do it myself. That's when my life changed. I was no longer that little seven-year-old who was trapped, abandoned, frozen, abused, because sometimes clients, they fight, flight, freeze. Those are the common responses that you hear. So I was a freezer. I was freezing up until 40, even though I had been married at that time for 13 years. And so complete recovery just means that I can face every day, I'm not living in my past. My past is not controlling me. It means that I am free in my mind. I'm free in my body. I'm free in my spirit. I am free to make choices and not just survive, but to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so I can authentically go and live the life that I choose to live, whatever that is, without looking over my shoulder in unforgiveness, in fear, fright, frustration. So that's kind of how I encompass complete recovery. That process for everyone entails a variety of different things. But for me, it consists of spiritual wellness, which was foundational to my healing, emotional wellness, physical wellness, and mental wellness. Wow,
0: that's good. So I have another question about complete recovery. So in complete recovery, does that mean that you do not think about the victimization, or does it mean
2: that you don't allow it to control you? That is such a great question. It does. You will never forget your story. Never. You will never, ever forget it. But when you remember it, you have reframed which is what EMDR does, you reframe the experience. So my experience with sexual trauma was necessary for me to do the work that I do as effectively as I do it. It was necessary for me to have an understanding of how to support, how to be patient, how to walk alongside someone who is wounded and hurting without judgment, without rushing them, without looking down upon their particular choices, on their survival choices. So you will never forget. There is no such thing as forgive and forget as people sometimes say, but you will always remember. But when you remember it, you. Rem- I remember my recovery with prayer. I pray for my perpetrator. I pray for those that he wounded, the lies that he damaged and destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember it with thanksgiving. I'm so thankful that I have this wound and these experience so that I can help this other lady who is more wounded than me. Mm-hmm. Had I not had my experience, I could not give them the gift of help. Mm-hmm. So no, you never forget. It's always there, but it does not control me. I don't have nightmares anymore. You know, I don't go around looking over my shoulder. I don't leave all the lights on in my house anymore because I'm afraid of that perpetrator being in my house. You know, I can walk through my house empowered. I don't worry about going somewhere at night. I'm secure in everything that I do. And I'm willing to face anyone and anything is what complete recovery, not forgetting looks like for me. I remember, and I do things wisely as a result of my trauma. Mm -hmm. So I use that information and that experience to help me to make better decisions
1: and to teach others. Well, your life of freedom is incredibly inspirational. And as, okay, on this clinical portion of me, you mentioned EMDR. And so I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with people, you know, especially over the last year. And I think there, I would love to just speak to EMDR a little bit. I feel like there's like maybe a little bit of a um, some fear in um, people to start that have been recommended that that might be helpful, but only that is getting the right person to go through EMDR because I feel like I've also heard, you know, people who have done it and maybe not been warned of what, what it's going to be like and the work that it's going to have to, you know, the pain and the trauma that might come up there at first and takes a while to work through. Actually like you said like, this is a, com- this is a process. It's not an overnight recovery. So I don't know. Do you, can you speak to that process a little bit and how that helped you?
2: Absolutely. So the thing about EMDR is, if you are not a trained clinician, avoid it. Mm. I mean, it is unethical for you to dive or to try to do anything that you have not been trained in. That's number one. Right. Any trained EMDR therapist is going to know how to do the preparation, the resourcing, we call it, the assessments, and the process for getting an individual started. Most people cannot walk out of their traumatic situation and begin EMDR. But I will say this for EMDR, in my professional opinion and just what I know about EMDR, EMDR will not damage anyone. And EMDR is the most appropriate because when you have trauma, trauma changes the memory. Mm -hmm. Trauma changes the body, the brain, everything, your biochemistry, it changes every aspect of that. What EMDR does, EMDR does not require the individual to do a trauma narrative like a lot of therapists do. You don't have to go relive your story, which is the power in EMDR, but you deal with the cognition. When you have trauma, your prefrontal cortex is offline, And so since your prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking executive brain, since it is not functioning and it freezes or it goes offline during the traumatic experience, your amygdala takes over. EMDR, on the other hand, does not require all of those inner workings. And what it does is it integrates the intellect with the emotional. That's the beauty, and that's what changes things. Because when you have a traumatic experience, you have the emotional side, which is why you have the nightmares, which is we have all the emotions. You have the fear. You have the anger. You have all those emotions associated with your trauma because your amygdala is hyperactive. It takes over and hijacks the brain whenever you are triggered. EMDR, on the other hand, takes those emotions and that feelings, and it talks about how you want to view the the traumatic experience. It talks about how you want to feel. It doesn't make you relive the experience. But when you're doing the bilateral movement, which is where the eye movement comes in, it doesn't have to be eye movement. It could be tapping with a butterfly tap. It could be walking. So it is just so... Uh, That emotional freedom technique, the tapping therapy, that's just as powerful because it taps into the meridian points. And so it's really important for people to understand that EMDR does not do damage because you're remembering anyway. But with EMDR, the brain does the integration. The brain does the process. And I call it, for me, it's like the Jesus therapy. What happens in your brain and with your experience, only Jesus can do. And so I think it's so powerful because for me, what happened was uh, as I went through my EMDR session, um, they have, when I say resource, I mentioned resourcing. What resourcing means is EMDR equips you with coping skills it equips you with the skills needed to manage the emotions of a traumatic response. Mm -hmm. And so if a client is well resourced, even when they are triggered, they can tap into that resource toolbox and use some of those resources to help them to regulate. Their emotions. So, if a client has been properly resourced before beginning EMDR, that sometimes takes two, three, four, five weeks, just depends on the person and how dedicated and how uh, willing and ready they are to change, because readiness is critical to change. And so, once they are resourced well and they are ready, the EMDR process takes no more than eight weeks. So, the whole oh, process, wow. I would say, maybe takes eight to 12
1: weeks. Oh, wow. Well, I thank you so much. That was like an amazing example of what EMDR is. And I know there's going to be a listener like 100% know that is going to be listening to this and really appreciate what you just said, because I think it's something like I said, that people talk about and it's recommended, but there's like this kind of like people withhold from feeling like it's maybe like a scary thing. And you know what you're talking about is just you know, and the trauma behind it and really explaining it. I just, I appreciate that so much. I know somebody is needed to hear that today.
2: Well, thank you. And the other thing that I want to say is a lot of people think that, you know, if you have complex trauma, which sex trafficking is very complex, um, sexual assault is very complex. uh, Orphans come from complex trauma. People that have repeated trauma, that's complex trauma. It does not matter the level of trauma um, because I have a client that has DID. She is a true DID individual. EMDR has changed her life. Mm -hmm. Um, So it doesn't matter which personality surfaces, but EMDR can help with integrating those personalities and those parts. So it's it's really powerful and critical, I think to the healing process.
0: That's awesome. I think you just answered a question I was about to ask. <laughs> um, should EMDR or is it only used with sexual trauma, but you just answered that question.
2: Uh, it, EMDR can be used for children. Okay. Um, they can do the tapping. They don't have to tell their story. Um, so EMDR is powerful. And I i mean, I've used it with suicide, um, those that have suicide ideation. Um, so it's not... I don't, I just think if the therapist is trained, if the individual is ready, for me, I don't see a population that I would refrain from if the person exhibits readiness, the therapist is properly equipped and trained. Um, the, The client will let you know if this is appropriate or not. And so, and that's what a trained therapist can do is they can assess and they can determine, is this person appropriate? Are they ready to move to this phase of the healing process? That's where a trained clinician comes in. Awesome. Thank you so
0: much. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your experience in the military. So um, how have you been able to help victims of sexual trauma in the military? Not saying that the trauma occurred while they were in the military, but just trauma, period.
2: So um, that's a loaded question because that's kind of <laughs> like what, that's really where a lot of my experience come from is not starting with the sexual trauma because I worked, I don't know that I told you, but I worked for Child Protective Services starting in 95. Oh. So my work with Child Protective Services started out as an investigator and then I worked with child children that were sexually traumatized. So that's kind of where my professional work started was with Child Protective Service. And then I moved on to uh, working at the Children's advocacy center doing intakes doing therapy for five to 18 years old so i was doing all of that as soon as i came off of active duty originally in the military and so it was after that that i began working with when the war started in uh 2001 the um iraqi freedom um you know i enduring freedom um the Afghanistan, Iraq, when all of those conflicts started, that's why I started working a lot with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so, and it all started with me and my private practice and I was volunteering for soldiers that were returning from war. They were going to the VA for care, but they were only being given pills. So they were only being given a prescription, but they were not having the therapy. So that's kind of where things like really kicked off for me uh, with working with a lot of PTSD. I had overcome PTSD, but um, that's kind of where my traumatic experience started was helping those soldiers to come back and reintegrate with their families, to reintegrate their experiences, to deal with being uh, where there are IEDs, where there were bombs, uh, to leave war at war and put their experience in perspective. And then as I begin to work with them, I begin to look at sexual trauma in a different light. I was like, oh my gosh, they're in a war zone with their perpetrator, you know, so, and then the military sexual trauma piece. So at the same time, I began to do uh, advocacy within the military. So they came up with a program. I began to train advocates and so forth in the military to do victim assistance in the military. So I was training advocates to uh, take care of individuals who experienced military sexual trauma. So my personal experience, coupled with my therapy experience for PTSD has all been powerful in helping and healing and giving hope to individuals in the military because the military has a different culture. um, It is hard to get help. It's not hard, but you're in an organization where you really can't be wounded. And what I mean by that is, yes, there's help, but if I have PTSD, if I'm dealing with military sexual trauma, I don't need to be in a combat zone. I don't need to be carrying a weapon. So there's a fine line and the healing process is not quick. So getting help is really tricky and sketchy in the military. The military is one of the best organizations for providing help, I will say that. We have the most opportunities, the best help and the best support, but on the side of the military, I have to say that if you have military sexual trauma, and you're not dealing well, the military might not be for you to continue because you can't continue and you can't go to a war zone when you're hypervigilant, when you're jumping, when you're ca- because we have to carry a weapon everywhere we go when we're in a deployed environment. In a deployed environment, if I don't have trust for men because of my military sexual trauma, because it came from leadership or it came from my supervisor, how am I gonna go and be predominantly with men? You know, who are my triggers? Um, And and so it's a very, very uh, powerful opportunity that I get and I have a lot of private conversations. I have a lot of um, off the record conversations with individuals trying to prep and prepare them uh, for what their next steps are. And my approach is to empower them with education and information about how trauma impacts you and about how they're able to move forward. Many of them I will honestly I tell them honestly, you are not safe to go down range, you know, either you make the decision or I need to help you because you the way you're you're not able to sleep. So when you don't have rest, it messes with your thinking, mm-hmm. it messes with your ability to function, it messes with your memory. And so when you think of all of the side effects of trauma, uh, you have to really be well to serve in the military. And if you're not well, you're really a danger to those around you. And the military is really not the platform or the venue to get well and restored. Uh, I will just kind of say that. But uh, so my, my work in the military has been very rewarding because of my military experience, because of the environment that I'm accustomed to, and because of my sexual trauma experience, all of that coupled um gives me a powerful platform and opportunity to help and support a lot of people. And I wanna tell this quick story. Um, So I had the privilege to work with some individuals who got out of the military back in the 1990s. Um, And this was through Homeland Security that I was able to support them. So what happened was I don't just do sex trafficking. I work with child exploitation as well. Child exploitations deal with child pornography, Mm -hmm. child uh, pornography, production, distribution, possession. And so I get an opportunity to support those young babies as well. And so I had the privilege to work on this case of child pornography that was connected with the military and then the person that was the perpetrator had been discharged from the military with an article 15, kind of a slap on the wrist for his sexual behavior, uh, misbehavior. And so two of his victims uh, had never gotten justice, but as a result of the child pornography that he was doing, they looked into his record, those victims ended up being witnesses for the child pornography case. So they had their day in court, and even though it was 25 years later, uh, so I always tell my victim, my clients, I say, make a report. Even if you don't have a lot of information, put it on record that this happened and it'll circle back because perpetrators do not perpetrate once. Mm-hmm. Um, there's studies that show that perpetrators who first serve a day in jail, they perpetrated on average 50 or more individuals before they're ever caught. So they perpetrated a lot of individuals before they're ever caught or get to spend a day in jail, so... Uh, It's so important for individuals who have been violated to understand the importance of taking your voice back. Mm. And it doesn't matter how you do that. It doesn't matter that the justice system may or may not support you, but put it on paper that it did happen because that's part of your testimony, that's part of your recovery, and that's part of who you are. Don't be ashamed of those scars is what I tell people. We need those wounds to show that we've been in war. That's
1: right. Man, I'm not a... Thankfully, I'm not a victim of sexual trauma, but I just feel completely inspired. (laughs) I mean, uh, really, seriously, it's um, amazing just what you do and how you're helping people. And just like just the analogies that you use, you know, it's it's really uh, I know people that you come in contact with are truly blessed um, by how you help them. Um so I'm oh, sorry, you know, you know how I get. Yeah. It's like, wow. Look, her, little, <laughs> her little face is getting red. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you that I'm so privileged and That's honored. hormones. Huh? <laughs> so that's the flush of hormones, Paula. Oh, okay, oh, okay.
0: Yeah, my yeah, bad. Yeah. I thought you were about to waterworks. works <laughs> No, about no, to start. no, no, no. Okay, all right.
2: <laughs> it's an honor and it's a privilege to walk alongside because the individuals that I serve, I mean, my, I look at I don't have trauma when I, I do have trauma, but when I look at them and what their journey is like, because there are a lot of factors that play into individuals who have trauma. And many of the majority of my sexual trauma individuals, many of them don't have a support system, Mm -hmm. um, which is critical to the healing process because they have familial trauma. Uh, As you know, 80% of those who have been sexual traumatized, it's within the family or someone they know. And so when you think about that and your perpetrator is your dad, your perpetrator is your mom, your perpetrator lives with you. Um, When I look at that and I look at these resilient, magnificent, phenomenal women, I am just so privileged to walk alongside them and see their journey and inspire them, educate them, enrich them and empower them. It's like, yes, let's fight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're not quitting. Our voice is going to be heard. So it's just a privilege to do what I do. I love it. Sorry. No,
0: oh, don't great. apologize. <laughs> that is great. Hey,
1: our, our, uh, our part of our logo is step into the fight. So, girl, you got it. Like, yeah, we're yeah. ready to fight.
2: Yes. And I want everybody to be educated, to do their part in their place so that we can all see and put the pieces together. So my whole goal is to kind of unify us in this fight because there's so many, it's so fragmented. It's like everybody's doing their little piece and instead of us unifying our efforts, our resources, we can do so much more as a team. I mean, that little acronym together, everyone achieves more. I mean, that is so powerful for teamwork. If we pull our resources together, just think of the impact that we can have. I mean, so that's my vision for this fight is that we would be unified. Yeah, I love that word. Um, Question. So let's say I'm just a regular
0: person. But I'm not. But let's say I'm a regular (laughs) person. (laughs) And I want to uh, learn more about Human trafficking and, and how to put an end to it. What would be your advice to me?
2: So, if you are just a regular citizen, mm-hmm. I would say um, the first thing is to get educated. Because, you know, so many times I hear people, well, God laid it on my heart and I want to do this. Okay. So you need to know what you don't know. And even <laughs> now I don't even know what I don't know. So I proceed with caution, even with as much experience as I have, uh-huh. I always say, I don't know what I don't know. And so for the regular person, educate, educate, educate. I would encourage them to volunteer 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 uh, before they go start an organization before they go and say i've been called to do this you know because you don't even know i tell my people all the time i said you know what i am a dangerous person and i am people are so mad at me because when i rescue or when i'm part of the recovery of a client do you know how much money I took from that trafficker Mm -hmm. on average, it says $12,500 a day. Mm -hmm. So if I'm stopping that kind of income, there might be a death threat against my life. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that you know a little bit about it before you even get started, Mm -hmm. know a little bit about victimization. And the, one of the first things that I tell them, it begins with you. Mm -hmm. If you're not healed, sit your tail down and get well <laughs> go do your own recovery first because you are going to wound someone because you don't even know your own hurts mm-hmm. and so a lot of times when we've been wounded and when we've been traumatized we feel called to do something and so the first step is to heal first deal with your own wounds first before you go and try to help and support another person so your own healing your own education and then volunteer to see what is my role because there are different roles in the helping process. Some might be one that just wrap care packages that might be your service and contribution Some might some might be a financial contributor. You might contribute financially to the cause while you're getting well, while you're, um, you know, getting yourself healed, while you're figuring out, while you're getting educated. Some might be a crisis call worker, depending on your experience and your education. Um, Formal education is critical, I believe, even though. A lot of my stuff came from experience. My formal education is important as well. Mm-hmm. So there, those are some basic things that I would just say. And I would also lastly say, be led by the spirit. Mm-hmm. You, this is something that you can't just volunteer to do. I think people in this work are called to do it. Mm-hmm. This is our assignment. And so if this is not your assignment, or if you think it is, make sure you're not prematurely diving in. Before you are prepared to go and do the protection, the prevention, you know, the partnerships, make sure you are ready to do whatever you are called to do before you proceed.
1: Such good advice.
0: Thank you. I I hear such passion in your voice in this part, especially with, you know, a a regular citizen who wants to step into the fight. Mm -hmm. It's important that if you have your own trauma that you heal and that you deal with it. And then educate yourself and then find ways to volunteer. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. I know we've said before,
1: haven't we, about like be a student of trafficking before you decide to go and do something, Mm -hmm. you know, to really understand. And from other people we've talked to, even in this space, have spent, and I know ourselves in Reclaim, like at least a year to two years just being a student and connecting and figuring Mm -hmm. out what it is that we can contribute specifically and that the Lord has called us to. and Prayer, 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 right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, the thing that I I tell people every day, I learn something new
2: every day. This is not like one of those things that, you know, just because you've done it for 10, 15, 20 years that you know, no, we don't know because every time we learn something, the perpetrators change the game. Mm -hmm. And so the clients that I deal with are the most powerful educators like I said, I am so privileged to be able to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I learn something every day. I sit at the feet of one of my clients and I thank them like, oh, thank you so much for teaching me. So um, that being a student, I love the way you phrase that. I think that is Well said, Uh, besides healing, being a student, and always being open to learn. And you know, this is another thing I wanna say, uh, to the, I'm a faith believer, and I know you've heard me talk about my faith, but I just wanna say to all the Jesus people, (laughs) if you're gonna claim him, do it his way. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't do some of the stuff that some of these organizations and some of these advocates are doing. He didn't do it that way. And so Jesus was long suffering, which means he was patient. You know, he was humble. He was kind because some of us want to like rush the process. You know, we want to make people, uh, we want to speak in tongues over people. Stop it. You know, a lot of these people are wounded by people from the faith community. They've been, their clients have been deacons and pastors and preachers. And I have no tolerance for organizations who want to claim the name of Jesus And then you wanna like dictate what this person can or can't do or what their process is like as if you are the healer. Mm -hmm. So to all of those who are claiming Jesus's name, look at the way he handled the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. Look at the way he didn't talk about her, that she had had five husbands and not been married to any of them. So I think it's so important that we lay aside our judgment, Mm -hmm. that we lay aside our personal stuff and realize it's not about you. We are supposed to represent well when we go and we serve these individuals because it is indeed a privilege. It is indeed a privilege to come alongside and walk them through the healing process and for them to see the light and the love that lives within us. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. I want to ask you this. Um, You said that you are constantly learning every day, right? And how long have you been working with victims Since 1995. All right. So since 1995 until 2020, so that's about 25 years, right? So you said that the perpetrators do things differently now, right? So can you identify a difference that you see in 2020 versus maybe 20 years ago?
2: Social media is like the biggest one. I mean, everything is – the perpetrators have access – to everything and everybody. And even worse is that we don't even know the danger that we're in. People think, well, I have my locator off. You have your locator off, but you're posting on social media. Because you're posting on social media, the cell towers that took that picture, the cell towers that you use for the internet to post that picture, all of that determines and gives perpetrators insight to your location, to your whereabouts. And so other thing, the other thing is there's so much money and people are looking for a quick, Income, so perpetrators can buy people at the phone company, can pay people off at Facebook, Instagram, Kick, Eki, whatever the site is. They can pay people off to get information. So, yeah. if you are on social media, that is like the biggest game changer. Is social media, uh, hotels, or even participants and trafficking there we have cases where there are entire floors of hotels that are dedicated and that are purchased by traffickers traffickers sometimes own hotels you know so so there's just so many different things people girls are not walking the streets any longer they've kind of gone back to that a little bit because of covid So COVID has kind of changed things, but people are not walking the track anymore. Things are being done through social media. And the other thing that traffickers are doing is they're positioning and propositioning young girls, 12 to 14 is the average age, they're propositioning them because we have so many vulnerable kids who are latchkey. That's another big thing that I see is kids unattended. People, Why are you giving an eight-year-old a cell phone? Right. What business does your eight-year-old need for social media? And so we have given the enemy access to our homes and then they're not attended. Kids are not parented anymore the way they used to be. So when you look at the generational changes, when you look at the access elements uh, when you look at the vulnerability of not just the the victims, but even the perpetrators, because many of them are victims of childhood trauma themselves. Right. And so there's so many dynamics that go into that. Um, and as soon as law enforcement can catch up, the traffickers change the game. Mm. They change how they do things. So uh, there's a whole dark web that has all kinds of information, education on how to be criminals. Mm. And so so that's why I say we don't know what we don't know. Um, And then if you look at it, the top three crimes are weapons, drugs and trafficking. Mm -hmm. They all go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. People are bold. People can find what they need to get their illegal jobs done. And so we just have to be vigilant. We have to be educated and wise, and we have to equip young people at an early age. Right? Um, it is too late to. I mean, it's not too late, but we need to start really. I started educating educating my kids when they were eighteen months, two years old, about their body parts mm-hmm. and about being prideful and the real names. <clears throat> and that's just basic sexual sexual abuse education. Is just making sure your children are calling the body parts the body parts. Girl, that's I where just it starts
1: even say that enough I love that you said that all my kids are well six and under Mm -hmm. and I mean that is something even I have so many conversations with parents and they just shy away from Calling, I know this is such a tangent, but, like, calling body parts are body parts. That's and right. my, I'm so, I feel like I, I try to be really diligent in that because they need to know if they were assaulted or something, God forbid, happened and they needed to, they needed to be able to call out what happened and what, I mean, I would want them, they need to know that's powerful in a, in the statement for a kid to be able to call, you know, their vagina, their vagina or whatever it is, even if at an early age, so. Sorry, I kind of cut you off there, but that's definitely no, no, that's... on my soapbox of things that's so important to start really early. Um, and and... Even, even
2: in not just the body parts, but even boundaries. Yes. We have yeah. the have four boundaries. Right. And so we've got to, that's some of the, those are some of the things that I teach my clients when we're spending time together. I'm educating them. I'm kind of reparenting them because they didn't have the parenting is what I find with the majority of the individuals that I have the privilege of serving. So I'm reparenting them and teaching them how to protect their children. So Mm -hmm. the boundaries is a very, very, very powerful thing. And and just even trying to teach people that your brain can be healed because many times when you're wounded, you think I'm crazy, I'm broken, there's no hope for me, which leads to suicide. Mm And so just kind of empowering people that the brain can be retrained, but it's what you do. And it's the work that you put into it that facilitates that process and expedites it.
0: All right. Well, before we wrap it up, I'd like to ask you this question. Um, And I'm sure you have many that you can pull from, but what is one of your most memorable and most powerful um, rescues? in human trafficking?
2: I would say um, one of my most memorable rescues and recovery was a 15 year old who had been trafficked since she was nine years old. And um, she stands out to me for so many reasons. Um, She was a straight A student. Um, just thriving at school and in life until she was sexually abused by her mom's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to her at nine. She was sexually abused, but because of her mom's chaotic and dysfunctional situation, the lack of the lack that they had, she didn't tell her mom because her mom's boyfriend had just got them their first home. They had been homeless and struggling. So since this boyfriend was part of that housing stability, she didn't say anything, but that was a turning point of her life was her sexual abuse. And if you know anything about trafficking, 88% of those who have been trafficked suffer sexual abuse. They're sexual abuse survivors. And so um, that's some type of sexual trauma. And so for her, once she realized that sex can make money, she realized this at nine, I think she was 10 because she told me, I said, so how did things change for you? She said, well, I was walking home from school and this guy uh, asked me if I would have sex. When he had sex with her, he paid her. That's at, This is at nine and 10 years old. She said, I think I was nine or 10 is what she said to me. And so I'm listening to her story with a broken heart and with sadness. But when we recovered her, she was claiming to be 17. Um, she has gone on since, uh, she, idolized her trafficker he was her bae her boo she was making him four thousand dollars a week and she was not getting any of it he had her locked up in a hotel room um you know saying I just want to spend time with you I want to protect you but as she and I began to conversate and we just kind of have girl talk um I kind of began to just kind of say girl so how's the relationship with you and your boo and she said to me well you know we, we're we pretty good i said so have you met his family she says i've never met his family you know he wants to keep me a secret and so she's telling me her story as she tells me her story i turn her story back and i say you know i said all of these women that you're fighting about i wouldn't stand for that either you have every right to be upset i said you haven't been on a date I said, what does that tell you about him? You got these bodyguards that stand at the end of the hall of your hotel room. You're making $4,000 a week, but you don't have a house. He's been promising a house. So I just began to educate her. And as I educated her, she began to become angry. I can remember the anger in her face as we sat there in the police station, because all she wanted at first was to go back to him. But as we continued to talk, she began to tell me the story. And, you know, I didn't press her. I stayed with her for two, three whole days. Nonstop. When she was at the hospital, I was there. She was at the police station, I was there. When she went to juvenile, I was there. I mean, I was there the whole time until she sobered up. When she sobered up, she says, you know, I remember us vaguely having a conversation about, and she called his name, and I said, yeah, so what's up? She says, I'm ready to talk. She says, because he's been using me. And it was at that moment that she decided to talk to law enforcement, tell the whole story. The individual ended up getting 25 years. She ended up going to a a safe house or a program where she got treatment. She ended up graduating from high school. Uh, She now has two children, has her own place. Um, But one of the things that stood out to me too was the fact that she turned 16 during her time in juvenile. I was able to get her out We had a birthday party for her at the courthouse and she just cried during that birthday party. I invited her sister because her sister was one of the reason why she was trying to go out and make money because her sister was 19 at the time and had three children. Mind you, my client was 15. And so she was trying to make money to buy Pampers and milk and stuff for the sister, which is why she was trying to connect with these individuals on Facebook. But nevertheless, she didn't think she would live past the age of 16 because of all of the trauma that she had experienced. She was afraid of law enforcement because every time she told them her story, nothing happened to the perpetrator. So Homeland Security was the first opportunity out of all the police departments that she had had where something actually happened to her trafficker, where we actually did what we said we were going to do, not to knock any other police department, but her story and what happened with her lets me know that we have a long way to go in educating law enforcement. We have a long way to go in educating the community, even parents and family because i hear so many parents talk about oh she's just being fast she's woman is she's just out there selling herself no prostitution does not exist for anyone under the age of 18. that's right and that's even right. if there's a prostitute prostitute that's over 18 if you look at their story there's somewhere where they were forced They were cursed, or there was some fraudulent enticement into them getting to where they are. Someone has used their name and criminalized it. They can't get a job. So there's a bigger story to every person that is being sexually exploited, whether they're a child or an adult. Right. And we just say over and over again. That's one of my most memorable uh, clients. There is
1: no such thing as a child prostitute. That is correct. No such thing.
0: Well, before we go, do you have one more, just one statistic that the general public may not know about trafficking?
2: I would say one of the biggest myths and one of the biggest misconceptions is that those that are being trafficked are foreigners. The majority of my clients, if you look at even Polaris, uh, that's the human trafficking hotline. If you look at the individuals who are calling the hotline, the individuals that are being trafficked, most of them are United States citizens. Uh, 80% of them have been involved in the social services system. So you have encountered them, whether it's the welfare system, Medicaid, whether it's the uh, public hospital, John Peter Smith, Parkland, you've encountered them somewhere but you didn't recognize them. Because another statistic is that 88% 88% of them have been to healthcare providers, yes. but only 6% of healthcare providers recognize them. Amen. That's tragic. Yeah. That tragic. is tragic. That's an indictment on us. They sit in your churches. I'm sorry, I went somewhere else. But so I think <laughs> it's so important that we understand we see them every day. We see them. And I talked a lot about sex trafficking, but the labor trafficking is just as prevalent. It's even more prevalent, but we, they're harder to prosecute you see them in hotels you see them in restaurants we see them everywhere and we don't recognize it or we don't have time Mm -hmm. so my thing to everybody is open your eyes and respond to the person that is begging for help that person that's in the grocery store that looks tattered that looks extremely thin that's with an inappropriate partner that's submissive head down um you know just There's an inappropriateness about the relationship. You feel a tug at your heart. Call the trafficking hotline. Make a report, one 373 7888 Make a report. Call in a tip with a little bit that you know. You never know if it's going to match the pieces of other information that's been provided.
1: Okay, can I ask you one last thing about reporting? Sorry, I I swear this will be the last thing. Sorry, Paula. Okay, Okay, so for all those, the healthcare aspect of this, right? You hit a statistic that kind of has some strings attached to it for, with me. And um, when it comes to reporting as mandatory reporters, uh, there yeah. is somebody, you have an active case in your in your hospital. And like you said, not all law enforcement is, you know, equipped or trained in this area um, and trauma-informed. So yeah. what would be your recommendation to a healthcare provider who um, has a, a victim in front of them Um, and maybe has not uh, felt that calling local police did this justice or had the appropriate person came out to do the appropriate job, what would be your recommendation for them to call or to do at that point?
2: So one of the things is, um, first of all, equip the client. That's one of the first things that I would do. Um, Law enforcement is a part of it, but I think equipping that client to be empowered to make some decisions is first. And so, uh, but I would have them call the DHS, Department of Homeland Security tip line, because what happens when you call the tip line with the information is it goes out to the assigned Homeland Security office versus, so like what happens with us, because there's politics involved, is when you call local police enforcement, Homeland Security cannot step in. You know, we have to respectfully abide by that local police department's um, protocols, them being in charge, them wanting to lead the investigation, et cetera. Not everyone in one place friendly with Homeland Security, unfortunately, but I would have them call the tip line and that number for the tip line, I can give it to you. It's so important, it's 866-347-2423. Again, that number is 866-347-2423. That's 866-347-2423. When you call the tip line with the information that you have, the inappropriate person, the inappropriate relationship, the identity of the kid, if you have it, any names that you might have, whether it be real or fake, uh, whatever info, dates of birth, all the information you can have, that might be a person that we're looking for. That might be a missing kid. Uh, we might already have eyes on that trafficker. Um, so it goes into a database that can touch a wide spectrum of individuals and um, Homeland Security office that's assigned to that area. If it's the Dallas area, it would be my office our agents will respond, the the uh, on-call duty agent will respond to that situation and go out and take care of it. They might take local law enforcement with them, but we would at least have an inside uh, participation into that situation. So um, the tip line is just for tips if you don't feel safe. The other thing that I've had people do is I've invited them to call me. Um, sometimes when you call Child Protective Services, if it's a minor um, and if it's suspicious, that's another way to get another set of eyes versus just law enforcement by by themselves. Mm-hmm. So getting um, CPS involved can be important and powerful if it's a community effort, because nowadays with the state of Texas, I just want to brag on Texas just for a second, Texas is leading the way and regulating and also intervening in human trafficking. That's so important to understand. We have what's called multidisciplinary teams. We have care coordinators, we have advocates, we have all kinds of resources in the state of Texas. Uh, no other state's doing what we're doing. So it's important to make sure you access and give the tips when you're stopped. Don't hesitate to call CPS if you don't think this is really apparent. Um, so, so it just getting it on record is sometimes more important because we can then find that individual,
1: if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Obviously brings up so much. We need another hour, Sarah Lynn. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, to talk about all of that, you just bring up so many good points, but thank you for sharing that. And especially for those in healthcare who we know see these victims every single day walking through our door. So I appreciate and you, know, you.
2: This is one of the things that I've done with the several hospitals, uh, uh, Parkland and John Peter Smith, is they have like, um, they have specialized teams that are designated to trafficking. Right. And so they have a protocol at those two hospitals, I know for sure, for when someone comes in that is a victim, um, they have a procedure, Right. And if they're taken to a procedure, that procedure is private. No one can accompany them there. That's the procedure law enforcement is pulled in. Everybody on the team is coordinated. There's a coordinated effort to make sure that if this person wants to escape, they have an opportunity. Right. right. If they don't want the procedure, they can go back. If they want the procedure, they can be escaped and whisked away to a safe house and the trafficker will never know.
1: Yeah. I mean, you said the the magic words. You said the magic Uh words. The magic words is protocol there. I mean, that is what we're really passionate here about Reclaim is that that, if it doesn't exist, then things slip through the cracks every day. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But those are such great examples. All right, Paul, I know you're going to wrap us up since (laughs) we just keep going. No, it's okay.
0: (laughs) Well... Ms. Morgan, Colonel Morgan, we'd like to Great. thank you so much for taking out time and just sharing your wealth of knowledge with us, with the listeners. And um, you've shared so much information. And I want to say the thing that stuck out to me was the importance of making a report, no matter how long ago it, it happened. Because like you said, a person that They've probably victimized 50 people before they spend one day in jail. So that's, that's huge. That's, that's some serious knowledge to know. So I want to encourage anybody who's listening who may have been victimized by somebody and you've been afraid to tell your story or afraid to report it, report it so that this data can be in the system and we can put a stop to these perpetrators and hopefully um, uh, end some of this victimization. So thank you for that that that
2: knowledge. And if I may, I want to invite everyone to tune in, I will send you the link. We are having a human trafficking awareness kickoff on January the 11th. And it's one team one fight. Everybody is participating. So um, I will send you that information so that you can post it on your website. But uh, stay tuned for the human trafficking kickoff for 2021. Where we all come together to eradicate human trafficking.
1: Yay, thank Thank you. We'll post that link for sure. You're right. welcome. Thank you so much for
0: this privilege. Thank you. Uh, I am Paula. And I'm Carrie. And we thank you so much again, Colonel Morgan, for your time. And if you have any questions for us from Reclaim
1: 611, you can reach us at support at Reclaim 611 or www.reclaim611.org. All right. Thanks, guys. And Happy New Year. Uh, Ms.
0: Morgan, is there any type of way that people can get in touch with you or, or get in touch with DHS? I know you shared yes. the number earlier.
2: My num- my phone number is 214 930 0754. Again, that's 214 930 0754. That's my cell phone number. And my email address is my first name, S is in Sierra, A R O L Y N is in November. Dot Morgan, M O R G A N, at I as in indigo, C as in Charlie, E as in Echo, dot D as in Delta, H as in Hotel, S as in Sierra dot gov. That's Sarahund.morgan at ice.dhs.gov, dot dot 214-930-0754. Call me if you need a training. If you have questions, email me. We can set up a date. I'm willing to serve. Thank,
0: Thank you, you so much. much, and we want to encourage everybody who's listening to step into the fight. That's
1: right. Till next time. All Bye-bye. right. Happy New Year. Bye.